Real loud. Oh, Ooh, there we go. That was loud. Excellent. We're going to go ahead and get started, everybody. Welcome to How Many Lawyers Does It Take to Keep a Practitioner Out of Trouble? Based on our panel today, I would imagine three. Right? Our faculty today are Drs. Bolin, Dr. Zeigler, and Dr. Barnes. Please help me welcome our esteemed faculty. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We're uh, pleased to be here. And as you could tell from the session title, we've got uh, three current practice, uh, current, two current practicing attorneys and one uh, former practicing attorney uh, having worked in the federal government. Our, our bios are, uh, I believe, available in the um, program. And otherwise, we'll do um, brief introductions. Uh, we do have some uh, disclo uh, disclosure slide we've got to show you. And uh, we want to just make sure that you know why we have um, proposed to present uh, today. We really want to use this opportunity to empower you to recognize that despite the fact that there's a lot going on in the national and regional news about the prescribing of opioids and uh, other controlled medications, that you can feel empowered to do what it takes to protect yourselves as well as your patients. And you do not need to feel the pressure necessarily to stop prescribing or follow one particular recommendation. But there are methods that you can take to make certain that you have the appropriate policies in place. You've got the appropriate uh, literature uh, citations to reflect the fact that you know better than a prosecutor what the standard of care is and that your experience is certainly better than the interpretation of, say, for example, a, a DEA agent who might try to say that uh, he or she knows better than your particular uh, approach to practice. And so we want to give you examples of those tools that you can use to, number one, identify what your approach is and then to employ it, depending on the facts of unique individual circumstances, and to document that. Uh, and then part of that will include helping you to recognize what type of assistance you should get if you're interested or you ever have a need for uh, counsel to make sure that you choose very carefully the type of person who would help you in the event that you ever need to defend and show that you do know better than any prosecutor. So we're going to really talk about a number of the uh, headlines that we're seeing. This will be somewhat consistent with the session that we had a couple of days ago talking about the role of the media and politics and really how you can adjust your practices and steal yourselves and your practices and your colleagues to be able to defend against uh, these sorts of uh, accusations or even uh, threats or uh, the, the types of things that we'll hear Steve talk about in terms of statements that are not based, in fact, by politicians who are desperate to do something about the overdoses in their communities, two-thirds of which we know are now related to illicit substances rather than prescribed controlled medications. Uh, and so we will leave 10 minutes at the end for um, questions and answers. So if you do have questions, please make a note of them. And then at the end, raise your hand and uh, you let us know what your question is. We'll repeat it and uh, try to give you our answers. And the idea here uh, for this session arose out of Pain Week last year when I, in uh, doing a session on safe prescribing of controlled medications, heard from a participant. Well, Jen Bolin, when she presented, she had a different recommendation. Well, that's, of course, you know, very uh, dependent upon our perspectives, upon the facts as they're presented, how we interpret. And of course, every uh, scenario is different, and our opinions, of course, are going to be distinct based on that experience. So we're hoping that you will hear differing perspectives that really help you to analyze the fact that when you are making a determination, just like an attorney, the facts are crucial, and you really have to be sure, sure to analyze them and then document them to protect yourselves and your patients. So before we get started, I do want to ask each of you to give a brief introduction to yourselves and your experience and perspective. Yeah, I'm a... Uh so we got it here. Okay, very good. I'm a uh, professor at uh, Purdue University, Professor Emeritus. And I was a former prosecutor as well as a defense attorney. And I uh, also worked with the Drug Enforcement Administration. I did largely um, interdiction as it relates to um, international cartels, uh, marijuana and cocaine, so nothing along the, the diversion lines. Uh, in, in my science, I, what I uh, focus on is the impact of drug policies and uh, laws and regulations on how they treat uh, can impact pain, um, as well as I um, did some work on uh, the likelihood of prosecution stemming from opioids and non-opioid uh, administrations. And I'm Jen Boland. I'm a 30-year uh, attorney. I spent half of that time as a federal prosecutor. I actively practice. I do federal criminal litigation and licensing board litigation and specialize in 
helping um, practitioners find the expert witnesses that can help them. And I'm Mike Barnes, and I'm an attorney practicing in healthcare law and policy out of Washington, D.C. I got into this field by working in the Office of National Drug Control Policy under President George W. Bush, and so much of the focus of my practice is related to the safer prescribing of controlled medications and preventing and treating substance abuse. So we'll start up uh, just by acknowledging, of course, that dating back to even 2012, the headlines started uh, explaining to the public at large and then to policymakers that there is a problem associated with opioid pain relievers. And that, of course, has continued to evolve. We've seen a number of responses from states uh, as well as uh, even local gover uh, governments and the federal government in response to the uh, pill mill epidemic. And uh, since then, the responses have ultimately led to a reduction of the supply of prescription medications that are available for abuse without corresponding reductions in demand. And so obviously there is a demand for these illicit substances that are now flowing into our communities from narco-capitalist networks from China through Mexico into the middle of Ohio, for example. And so uh, those illicit substances are now what are, according to the CDC, as recent as today when I uh, spoke on a conference call with a representative of their, of their uh, injury prevention office, it's these illicit substances that are now making up two-thirds of the sources of overdose events in the United States at this point. So that includes, of course, fentanyl, carfentanyl, these illicit substances that are being put in the form of pills and sold on the streets as though they were oxycodone immediate release tablets. And then, of course, the media has caught on in addition to the public and policymakers, and that has proved to be uh, a source of a lot of opportunity for journalists to really strike out on a cause of their own uh, and to try to identify where scandal is, uh, even where it might not exist. And so that contributes, of course, uh, to the litigation and a lot of the pressures that you all feel on a daily basis related to the practice of uh, medicine. And so Steve had some comments about the media. Yeah, just a brief a few comments about this um, alarming statistics that, um, that clearly these folks are for attention. And uh, this is junk science is what this was based upon. And um, they actually reached out to dozens of people and they actually were able to get some to actually commit to some of their opinions. Um, I, I make no judgment on my, any of my colleagues who may have um, agreed to participate, but I would not have. Uh, one of the problems is is that they, in this particular article, they are recognizing the impact that carfentanil, illicit fentanyl, is playing, in and other illicit opioids such as heroin. So they recognize that initially that that's the driving problem. Yet later on in the article, uh, they say that their experts indicated that it's too hard to measure about um, whether this thing will improve or deaths will decrease until we see how the federal enforcement efforts. Uh, and, and how we've been able to deter doctors from prescribing. Well, doctors do not prescribe illicit fentanyl, and they do not prescribe heroin. So um, they're getting mixed messages. So what happens is you really have to read. Uh, unfortunately, they don't provide a lot of details. It's not like so much that they're fake news, but realize what's driving them. And secondly, uh, you know, I'll be quiet here in a moment, is that there was this Missouri case. is an infamous case, um, and uh, this one physician was sued, and... The headlines read that he was just treating this guy for, uh, for back pain, prescribed him opioids, and next thing you know, the, this jury comes back with this multi-million dollar judgment. Well, what I had to do is l read newspapers from five different outlets to be able to put what appears to have been the facts together. And that's clearly not what the newspapers had actually had published in the first place. What ultimately happened, what it appears to have, is that somebody presented with chronic back pain which is uh, millions of Americans suffer from this. And instead of trying alternative approaches, uh, physical therapy, moder a moderate, a monitoring him, um, following up on him, the guy just on, kept on prescribing opioids, kept on escalating dosage, just did not focus on the needs of that particular patient. That's what it appears to be. But I was only able to come to that conclusion after looking at about five different sources. So really, there's a lot of limits to this information. And unfortunately, this type of information is really influencing policy. Good. So one of the areas where we did agree in uh, preparing these slides are generally what uh, the standard of care is comprised of it when you look at uh, federal law under the C Controlled Substances Act, state uh, similar laws, Controlled Substances Act, and then even case law. And this comes out of um, a, an analysis that my colleagues and I did over the course of a couple of years 
looking at various sources of civil and uh, criminal uh, litigation. And uh, Jen, I think we have maybe one word difference, uh, right. ordinary course of professional practice versus right. usual course of professional practice. She has more experience, so we switched it to usual course. And it's the same work, right? It so is. we can trust. And we'll have slides here that will serve as resources for you if you're interested in just reading up and getting our impressions. Um, in this case, it's all of us, and some of it, uh, you know, it'll be my perspective since I put together the slides on what you can do and you know, what some of the standards are. But generally speaking, uh, these are what you really need to make sure that you address as you think about how to protect yourself from civil and criminal liability. Um, and then you know, we see now, of course, that even if you uh, deviate from, from uh, any of those or if, they, if there's an attempt at prosecution, the charges are even greater than uh, in the past because uh, there is an effort on the part of prosecutors, policymakers, um, at implementing a deterrent effect by charging individuals with murder. And has occurred, there have been successful prosecutions. Any comments from either of you about uh, efforts to charge and prosecute for murder? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think it's pretty ridiculous in most of the fact patterns that there always could be a place where murder would be appropriate. But in most cases, there's intervening steps by the patients, and as you look at the facts, it would be really difficult to call it murder. Right. So and that's my personal opinion on that. Typically, you have to look at the intent. Right, right, if right it's, sure. If it's negligent, then it typically would not ever right. fall under that. And the most of the cases are negligence, and very few of them would rise to the intentional level that the murder would require. Yeah, it's, and then, uh, going back to also is that the facts really drive everything. And we can read newspaper articles and say, my gosh, if one of my patient overdoses and dies, I'm going to be charged criminally as well. No, that's not exactly true. But because oftentimes what ultimately leads to criminal prosecution is a particular set of facts, uh, tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and that nothing was ever done, inappropriate prescribing. And when I mean inappropriate prescribing, out of the box prescribing. You know, oftentimes prescribing on several occasions what is, has been known as the Houston cocktail. And, um, and they're just un inconsistent with, with the standard. And so these type of prosecutions happen as a result. Yeah, these, are, these are the people who are choosing to profiteer intentionally and making this a business uh, irrespective of the risks to the patients in the community. These are not the people who are doing things well. It's not to say that there couldn't be an attempt by an overzealous prosecutor, but in terms of defense, uh, it can uh, be, we can, I think, reasonably certainly say that you could not successfully be prosecuted for this without that criminal intent, on that intent to um, you know, do something that uh, is harmful and not take uh, consideration of the, um, the uh, results of your actions. And most of those would be state cases where you see that murder being brought in and that language in the state, in the federal system. There's a penalty enhancement that uh, Michael may want to address in a little bit. Yeah, one, one other thing is, is, from the standpoint, having been a prosecutor myself, is the fundamental question that prosecutors ask themselves, good ones do, is that can I obtain a conviction for this particular charge in this particular community? Because they're going to ultimately, the people are entitled to a trial by jury. And the, the particular set of facts will have to be able to dictate and support such a conviction. And certainly most, the majority, will not waste their time on things that are going to fall through the cracks and it's going to be a waste of time and resources. The Department of Justice doesn't allow it. They require prosecution memos in most jurisdictions from the prosecutors outlining the information in the case and you know, what the, the pursuit is in terms of a sentencing uh, potential if there's going to be a conviction and they really want it laid out in these cases, especially when there's an enhancement for the um, death or serious bodily injury. And, and that can happen in the federal situation. Do you want to talk about the enhancement as well? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you think of a state case and a physician being charged with murder, that really gets hard to wrap your mind around, especially as we talk about these intent issues. In the federal system, when a physician is charged with inappropriate prescribing, it comes under the drug trafficking uh, statute or law. And so it's basically um, prescribing without a legitimate medical purpose and outside the usual course of professional practice. The prosecutor has the ability to add on to it and that such prescribing resulted in the death or serious harm to ABC patient. And when the government does that, they have to meet a standard that basically, but for the prescribing of that uh, controlled substance, this person wouldn't have died. But for the patient taking the medicine the doctor prescribed, 
when they do that, it's a mandatory minimum 20 years imprisonment. And it's a tough kind of case to defend, and I have defended them. They're very, very difficult. And so that sentencing enhancement is still out there and available in an inappropriate prescribing case, which is what makes it very scary to me, because that means all the more reason to do proactive measures to guard yourself and make sure you have arrows to shoot back if you do get investigated. And so what we're going to do next is just basically go through these four points and try briefly to give you any recommendations that we have on how, for example, to uh, verify the legitimate medical need. So, Steve, do you have any recommendations? As to how, to, how to verify a person's legitimate medical need for a controlled medication, specifically in opioid pain relief. Well, I mean, look at it in contrast with which good standard care, uh, professional care is that do you without even charting the patient or ex providing a physical examination of patient, taking their history, finding out what drugs they're inactive, do you simply write a prescription? No one competent does that. But there are folks out there that do that. They say, what type of drug do you want? There are folks that come in, and this is where these, these types of physicians and prescribers get in trouble is, what type of drug do you want? Okay, that'll be this much cash, and they write them a ticket. I, I write them a, a prescription for it, and that's along the lines of these pill mills. So what is the appearance that you're going to have to these regulators is that, well, what did you do with this guy? Well, first, I, you know, I didn't necessarily prescribe on the first time I saw him. I got his chart. I got his history. I did a patient evaluation. I conducted reasonable exams, uh, for example, diagnostic exams, not every single one known to mankind. And, it, for example, also if you engage in urine drug testing, which would be a good idea, what do you do with those results? Well, once they come in the mail, I just have my uh, administrative assistant file them. Well, do you review them? You know, um, and if there's a problem, do you call the patient about them? Do you call the, the lab about them? Uh, what do you do with that? So demonstrate and document it through your record about how you are a good prescriber, and that's consistent with good prescribing. Well, what I want you to understand is that legitimate medical purpose and usual course of professional practice are really two different things. And so your quest regarding legitimate medical purpose is you are to, you know, examine the patient, physical and past history, current pain history, and uh, come to a conclusion that there's one or more generally recognized indications for the use of the controlled substance that applies in the patient's case. That's legitimate medical purpose. So some people think of it as a diagnosis, but behind that are the steps that make up usual course of professional practice. In order to come to the conclusion that an opioid is appropriate, you have to do these things that are in part outlined by your licensing board, so the history, all those things we've talked about, and you keep going down your licensing board guideline or rule and basically check off uh, to make sure you're accomplishing these things. And then you do it periodically to make sure that the controlled medication remains indicated. So don't try to think of them as all lumped together. Try to realize that they are separated from a legal perspective, but in the end, that usual course of professional practice is what the experts tend to focus on. Right, and that really is translatable into the standard of care, and as Correct. we'll discuss throughout uh, today's session, standard of care is not determined by one particular guideline. It's determined based on the facts, and you look at various sources of medical scientific literature and expertise, including the types of information that you learn at forums like this of an educational nature. Uh, but if you know, we look at uh, the guidelines that are largely being pushed by the insurance industry and now by state legislators and now by plaintiff's attorneys, we see these blue lines here that are on the slide. Uh, and I think Steve and I had an area of disagreement where we just wanted to point out uh, differing points of view, uh, these steps being uh, with reference to those that are outlined in blue, the CDC guideline for primary care, very controversial. Uh, they're at the very least what you know you need to uh, address in your mind, and if you're going to deviate from them, have a good reason for deviating, a defensible reason for deviating from them. Steve, did you have anything you wanted well, to add? Sure, is that, of course, as your license is through, it's an interesting dynamic. Your license to practice medicine and prescribe is through the state, but have, you also have to be a DEA registrant. So there's kind of this uh, relationship between the states and the Fed. Um, so as a state practitioner, so to speak, is that you're to follow your state guidelines, your state rules. And um, the question then becomes, well, I'm a state physician, so what about the CDC guidelines? I mean, they're not binding on me. That is technically correct. They are not. Uh, but does that mean that you ignore them? No, because as we have seen, the problem has been 
is that the uh, CDC guidelines have found themselves uh, diffused across the United States. And uh, it is a standard. And as what lawyers do when they, when they bring a claim or a lawsuit, they need some type of standard. And one of the standards that they might look to is perhaps the CDC guideline. And not to say that that's the correct thing to do, but it is a standard. So although it is not binding on you, it is a potential uh, standard um, that you should be concerned about. And so by reviewing the CDC guidelines, and you may disagree with them, and I certainly disagree with portions of them, but you should document in the record about why you are doing that. And then one just other brief mention here is, is that to address an elephant in the room is we are providing you, I think, with some practical tips that you can use to help protect yourself and your practice and your patients, you know, consistent with good medical practice. But we also have to admit that despite all the good things that you do, that still does not prevent the possibility that you're going to get a letter from the state medical board or the DEA is going to show up at your office. That's something that we cannot, you know, guarantee that will not happen. But by engaging at least in these protocols, so to speak, and through that documentation, is that if they do show up at the door, you have at least an increased likelihood that you will prevail without a bad beating. Uh, that's certainly nothing we can guarantee, particularly in this environment, but I wanted to at least address that. Okay. Michael, may I just add one thing? On that, I'm going to disagree just a little bit with Steve, and here's why. When we're talking about whether these federal materials apply to you, Every state that I'm aware of in the country, licensing board, has a provision in its pain management guideline or rule, and it's usually item number seven, and it says that you must adhere to all other federal and state regulations and doc guidance documents relating to the use of controlled substances. Many times the licensing board will use that as part of looking at the CDC materials. And so while these are voluntary and they are not laws in your state, as, as Steve Shirley was indicating, um, there is a hook to bring them in. So it is you know, really important to be aware of them. And, and then, as Michael said, be very careful if you decide to not do something that's a recommendation there, like the one that's talked about the benzodiazepines, concurrent prescribing. It says avoid, and then, but the rest of the language is where possible. And so if it's not possible, then you want to give your rationale as to why, and then that way you show your awareness of the guideline, uh, and you don't have to fully embrace it as applying to you, but you can certainly acknowledge it. And I think that's a better position to be in if you have to argue what you did. Good. Just to, uh, as we go through the various headlines, one thing that uh, any prescriber of controlled medications or any prescriber should know is that there's a, apparently a new demand on the streets for gabapentin medication and so that obviously would be something that you consider as you uh, might think about how to protect yourselves and your practice from being a target. If this is something that uh, is part of your prescription practices, recognize that there are going to be law enforcement authorities that are going to be looking to whether or not that could help them build a case. Anything to add on that? All right. So is it reasonable or even possible to take all these steps that are necessary to protect yourselves, your patients, and uh, try to reduce the likelihood of harm, even if that harm is the result of someone's intentional misuse or abuse of the medications that you very carefully and safely prescribed after fulfilling your duties? Can you, within the course of your practice where you're being billed perhaps $30 for uh, your treatment episode, be able to do the things like checking the prescription monitoring program and looking at uh, urine drug testing results uh, and doing new urine drug testing, making sure that the person's not pregnant, and then you know, making certain that your care is individualized. Is that realistic? Uh, any input from either of my two colleagues on the realities of practice when you're getting paid minimal and you're expected to do maximum amount of uh, care and supervision of a patient? Well, well one thing uh, I can add uh, quite quickly is that this, I, I can empathize with you that some of this seems to be overwhelming. Where do we go from here? Where do we start? And there's a lot of things out there that can help you. And first of all, of course, by attending Pain Week, but also your own state professional associations. I'm from Indiana. And I know that the Indiana Medical Association, which is an NGO, it's not affiliated with the government, they are extremely helpful. 
you, you can go to their website if you're an Indiana practitioner, and they have a, an FAQs that are commonly asked and answered. Uh, so it's a great resource. You can reach out to them and say, maybe I need help in trying to manage my practice in this particular area, or what are the things that I need to know about? So your, med your own state medical associations are extremely helpful, and those folks return emails and phone calls. I cannot say the same about government agencies. Well, I think it's difficult to do all these things, especially if you think about doing them all in one visit. And I don't think it's very realistic. I think you really need to set up a protocol that divides some of these things out into multiple visits, especially with new patients where you're looking at a slow dance to in, in, you know, implement these things. So if you're not going to prescribe on the first visit, it, it's not necessarily as important to check up on the PDMP, right? But the risk evaluation tool might be important on the first visit, and the UDT might be important on the first visit. You get the results, the next visit you end up looking at the PDMP, making a decision based on the results if you're going to go forward and prescribe. That's just one way of looking at it. But I certainly think that whatever you're doing, you need to make sure you understand what your state licensing board expects you to do and be as close to checking off that list with each patient that you're putting on to controlled substances and maintaining on controlled substances. And then decide how you're going to you know, pass out the cards as you go through future encounters. One additional thing is that uh, Janet talked about your prescription, your state prescription drug monitoring program. Um, those can be an effective tool. Um, they're not the panacea, uh, but they can be helpful. There's a variation across the states. But one thing I would recommend is that you run yourself on the PDMP because some prescribers have come to me and said, I, I ran myself on the PDMP, and I said, I'm not writing that. I said, well, somebody is, and they're using your DEA number. So, that's, so reach out to your own state's PDMP to see if that is possible. It's just a good check on things. That's important because we do know that whether or not they're permitted to do so, the DEA is actually fishing through the, pres the prescription monitoring programs in states like mine, Virginia, uh, where uh, the law makes it clear that they're not authorized to do it. The actual PDMP administrator in Virginia is allowing the DEA to do that. And so if they're peeking in and looking at you, you need to know what they're seeing and you need to know uh, that there's not something that's going to put you at uh, unnecessary risk. So then getting back to the, the media hype and the concerted efforts by the insurance industry to drive an, a decrease in the prescribing of opioids, uh, especially opioid pain relievers, we saw the headline back in June, patients with mental health disorders get half of all opioid prescriptions. The suggestion here, if not the overt uh, directive by this reporter, where this reporting is that uh, we want to see people who have current or previous mental health conditions not get opioid pain relievers for the treatment uh, of their pain. And so that brings up the issue, what do you do? How do you address mental health disorders, either current or past history, when you know that somebody otherwise would be qualified because of medical necessity for an opioid pain reliever or other controlled medication? Jen, would you like to start? No. I think I'll let you guys do that, and then well, I'll just think okay. about what you're saying. Well, this, this brings up a, a variety of things, certainly one of privacy. It depends on how a particular state addresses this. Again, we're, this is all conjecture. This, this particular topic is based upon a, on a newspaper article. Um, but at the same time, it kind of reminds me of uh, an analogous situation is you have a patient who has a substance abuse problem who's in pain. Does that mean that you don't treat them? Well, you, you know, that it becomes a, a challenge about how to treat them. That's a clinical question. But that's, that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't treat them. If a person has a mental health issue, is that all of us, I think, have a mental health issue. And so it is a matter of degree. And so it raises these concerns that if you're, perhaps your state is trying to say that you cannot treat pain to those with mental health issues is certainly quite alarming. Yeah, and I would say look to the labeling of the medications because the labeling of medications and frankly the FDA's authority has largely been ignored over the past few years as the CDC has tried to step up. But these medications labels typically state that there's not an absolute uh, preclusion of individuals who have mental health disorders from uh, the use of these particular medications. But then you do want to uh, also make sure that you are addressing those risks in the record. So for example, if there is a prescription of a benzodiazepine that you see is occurring through the prescription drug monitoring program, I would always recommend that before prescribing another controlled medication, you reach out to that person, ideally document your communication in writing in form of a letter, 
But if it is a telephone conversation, note the time, the day, with whom you spoke, what they said, and then your follow-up action about that so that there is no question as to the fact that if you decide to prescribe that your prescription will be based on a full assessment of the facts and uh, your decision that the benefits of the treatment outweigh the risks. I see that there's a question, but we'll have 10 minutes at the end for questions. If you would hold it, we'll make sure that you're the first one that uh, we go to when we have the Q&A session. Uh, and then, you know, we have to also recognize that, of course, you might see the 50% 50, 50 of individuals who are getting opioid pain relievers have mental health conditions because what would it mean to you if you were in pain and were not treated adequately and you were able, not able to take your kids to soccer practice, not able to go to the grocery store, much less make a living, and you're, you're dependent on a system where uh, things are not working out for you and you're not getting well. So naturally that's going to have an impact on your mental health. I think you really just have to follow uh, the, you know, the additional rules and additional now uh, best practices in terms of documenting the fact that you've considered this and you still deem that getting this medication under the current circumstances is going to be of greater benefit uh, to uh, outweigh the harms associated the risk with the risks of the medications. Jen, anything to add? I just wanted to reinforce the coordination of care importance that you talked about. You said pick up the phone and call the prescriber of the benzo or whatever, the person that's treating for mental health issues. That is one of the most important things you can do is coordinate. You're prescribing the opioid, somebody else with the benzo. Let's have an open channel of communication going both ways. If that fails to happen, it gets pointed out in litigation, especially if there's a, a harm to the patient. Thank you. Uh, so this brings us, uh, you'll be number two <laughs> uh, for the question. This brings us to the issue of uh, really how we came up with this idea for this session because last year, uh, when I was in a session talking about what to do with someone who's non-adherent to the treatment plan, I had a recommendation. And, you know, it's generally following the principle that you want to kick up and not kick out. And someone said, well, well Jen Bolin, who has more experience than I have, uh, said something different. And so I thought it would be great to hear differing perspectives. Come to find out, I don't think we have differing perspectives. But, uh, Jen, I want to ask you to start off with what to do with somebody who's non-adherent to a controlled medication treatment plan and you think that there might be risks associated with controlled medication use or misuse or abuse? Well, if you've got a concern about the patient's behavior toward the drug, you need to stop and think and start asking questions, as we've talked about earlier today. Um, the questions that you're asking are going to sort of direct where you're going and decide whether or not you're going to um, take a, a more control over the amount of medication you're prescribing, whether you're going to change the medication you're prescribing, uh, whether you're going to discontinue it. And there's so many facts that could come in between that you, know, you have to decide which, way, which route this patient's going down. Um, I don't think that you have to automatically discharge. The real issue is whether you write the prescription. It's about your DEA registration and whether and how you handle the prescription um, that is really the issue. And I think that that goes along with your, you know, you, you increase the care, you increase the supervision, you do something like that if it's appropriate on the fact pattern. However, there are times that discontinuing care is appropriate, and that is to be handled a certain way. Yeah, and when we talk about non-adherence, um, it's important to, to be able to think of what non-adherence are you talking about. And I mean, most uh, significant number of patients um, suffer from so-called non-compliance. They're, they're not complying with the regimen as instructed for a variety of reasons. Some may be certainly totally innocent. So when you have somebody that is not adhering to the treatment regimen, what are they doing that they're, they're not adhering to? Are they accelerating their dose without your permission? Why are they accelerating their dose? Are they being undertreated? Is that a problem? Is, are they being, trying to treat it for a mental health condition instead, alternatively? Or, or do we have a, what has been called a pseudo-addiction situation in which once the pain is addressed, then all these other aberrant behaviors disappear? It reminds me, though, of this case in which the San Diego detective uh, was telling me this case is that he had a, a close relationship with um, with prescribers in the region, and he had this one prescriber call him up and he says, you know, I've got this guy in my office, and um, I, I think he's got a drug problem, and um, I just something tells me that with some of these things I'm observing, and what should I do? And the San Diego detective says, why don't you ask him, you know? And he says, okay, um, I'll go talk to him and I'll call you back. And an hour later, he calls him back and he says, wow. I walked in and I, I had empathy for this guy, I asked him what's going on, and he broke down and he tells me I've got a substance abuse problem and I need help. And he got him that help. And so by simply just reaching out and asking him, 
So when we talk about non-adherence, why are they not adhering? Maybe they got a problem, whether it be pain or something else, or just not proper instruction. So clarify what that non-adherence is. And one of the things that I have recommended to prescribers of controlled medications, especially opioids, whether they be opioids for opioid use disorder or for pain, is that if you recognize that a person has a dependence on the opioids, which is not necessarily addiction, but the person couldn't just be taken off the opioid. So the reason why you would even consider giving a seven or 30 day prescription which means you don't want the person just to be forced to go to the streets to get uh, you know, some relief for this uh, need that the person has physiologically for the medication. So in that case, documents like the CDC guidelines say that if there's uh, an instance of uh, extreme non-adherence, you know the person's dependent, you can taper them off uh, by referring them to a buprenorphine treatment provider, or even every community has a methadone clinic. And my recommendation is to make sure that you, you give that instruction to the patient if you decide that you can no longer treat the individual. You make sure that either of those types of practitioners has an appointment available, you give them a call, and then you document in writing that you um, gave you know perhaps a, a day or two supply, if that's how long it takes to get a uh, an appointment at the methadone clinic or at a buprenorphine treatment provider for opioid use disorder, uh, and then make sure that you document very thoroughly everything that you've done so that you're protecting yourself and the patient, and the patient can get appropriate care, in this case, for opioid dependence. Okay, now if we are talking, when we talk about dependence, we're talking about, in this context, uh, the, the term I'd use is substance abuse. If you've got a substance abuse situation as opposed to dependence, because dependence is a, is a whole other matter, but if you're going to if you have a person that has a substance abuse problem um, and you'll need to refer that person out or seek assistance for that. But if you're doing a taper that has nothing to do with a substance abuse problem is that this can be its own minefield because I've had some prescribers come up and tell me stories about how they wrote detox. Well, unless you have a license you know, to be able to uh, participate in that type of uh, treatment, that's going to raise big red flags. Why are you engaged in detox? The other thing is that it could actually harm your patient uh, who does not have a substance abuse problem, that's the assumption that I'm working with right now, but you are tapering. You're not detoxing, and that's a significant difference. Did you, you have, Jen, did you have anything about that that you wanted to add? I just think you have to be very careful with the terminology you use and really take steps not to label your patients inappropriately, especially if something's outside your scope of practice like determining whether somebody has a substance use disorder. Because you might have somebody that you're tapering that does not have a substance abuse uh, disorder, but now there's the possibility this person can be essentially blacklisted and be labeled as having a substance abuse problem when it was really a taper for some other reason. Right, and you know that, that uh, taper, if you're saying you're gonna get the person off the treatment for pain, unless you are finding some sort of solution to address that medical need for pain, there is still an issue of potential negligence because you're ignoring the medical necessity that you had recognized up to the point of your last prescription. So that doesn't just disappear because the person's not adherent to the treatment plan. Uh, but you know, even I think if we're, in my opinion, if you're talking about substance use disorder or even just dependence, just even needing this uh, controlled medication, in this case an opioid for pain, I think it's still appropriate to refer to methadone for opioid use disorder or buprenorphine for opioid use disorder because of the notion that the person cannot get by you know, because of the dependence even without uh, a substance use disorder. And I think that might, might be perhaps where Steve and I disagree. That's usually where we stop talking and stay in our lane and we let the doctors take over from there, right? Yeah, That's right. what we have to do because we're not clinicians. And so it's really hard for us to say anything other than what we experience in court or in interaction with uh, other attorneys and, and you know, legislators, things like that. Just be careful in the language that you use and make sure that you are staying in your own lane in terms of scope of practice and ask for help if you need help to be able to decide how to treat a particular patient. And if you make a, and in this context, if you make a referral, uh, follow up on that to make sure that it happened. Uh, because sometimes Absolutely. that's the end of it. Okay, we're going to speed through a few more slides just to make sure that we're touching on some hot topics. Obviously, we know that the federal government has uh, indicated that the, the president will soon announce formally his uh, national declaration of emergency related to drug overdoses. We've seen that the attorney general has deployed uh, prosecutors to numerous uh, uh, cities across the country. There's the supposed largest takedown in history, there's the Christie Commission related to overdoses. There's a lot of activity that's putting pressure 
on practitioners. And so obviously you need to step up your um, uh, attention to what you're doing, not just in the context of the prescribing of controlled medications, but also the use of especially federal resources if, for example, you're conducting urine drug testing and that's being billed to Medicare, for example. So we've got some recommendations related to urine drug testing. Uh, really briefly from each of you, I, I would like your best 20-second recommendation on how you can deal with the fact that insurers, including the government, are rationing urine drug testing, but we know that it should be used as often as possible when making a decision to prescribe or re-prescribe a controlled medication. How do you balance those competing factors? I, I balance them by suggesting that um, the practitioner understand where their state licensing board is, understand the basic payer medical policies, and then do what's right for the patient in terms of your clinical decision making and make it very clear. And there are going to be times that you order a drug test that the payer may think is not medically necessary and reasonable from a frequency standpoint. You got to stick to your guns and say why you're ordering it. And if it's because the patient is high risk, because there have been problematic uh, prior test results, uh, then then you say so. And uh, you know, if you document it that way, you're you're more likely to have a better outcome with the payer than if you don't document it. It doesn't matter whether the money's going into your pocket or a laboratory's pocket, you still have that same responsibility. I'm ordering this test because I'm doing it at this frequency because and this is what I'm going to do with the test results or this is this is this is these are the test results and this is what I'm doing now. Uh, and so that's how I would recommend that you handle it. And you know, don't get all wrapped up in numbers. I see people do that financially and that usually ends up being a very bad thing for them. Focus on what the patient needs because of their particular situation, their individualized situation in your practice. There really isn't a one-size-fits-all when it comes to the type of drug testing that you do. Uh, the thing that I would add to that is, uh, first of all, insurance companies should not practice medicine. Yeah. Um, so when they try to do that, because uh, you should see what avenues that you have for you. Number one, you certainly document this uh, monkey business on their part. Um, you would certainly see about what avenues are there for appeal. Um, and you should say something. And when I say say something, not only to the insurance companies and document these things, but you can also think about reaching out to your medical associations. You can also reach out and snitch them off to the state um, insurance board. These are regulatory agencies. They operate in the state because they have a license to do so because the state gave them that license to do so. And if a bunch of folks continue to complain about these hijinks, there'll be a record of that, and it'll be in your, in your documentation as well. Good. And I agree that in addition to documenting the individual circumstances and facts, that you have a policy that forms the basis of your approach to urine drug testing, just like you have with controlled medication prescribing, and that you use that. And then you can even cite to that or cite to those references that are uh, supported, that you use to support that policy when explaining uh, why this is medically necessary. And that oftentimes uh, requires communication with the insurers. Um, there are a number of resources, of course, that are available to you as you try to develop those policies. Um, these are, if you could get the slides, these are some that are, are easily found. Uh, and then, Steve, these were things we wanted to make sure that you yeah, covered. Yeah, we talked about okay. that. Good. Uh, we just want to make sure that uh, we've covered the session uh, objectives. And if not, if you feel like there's something else that you can uh, feel free to come and grab a business card from any of us. I think we're all on, I know we're all on LinkedIn. And uh, we would be happy to uh, provide uh, any information to you individually, uh, not legal advice, but just uh, general principles that we have for recommendations. So we'll move on to the Q&A. We've got first, second, and third, and then any others left. Yes, ma'am, in the red. Okay, so the, the question is, uh, basically, how, how do you deal with people who have complex conditions that are being prescribed, numerous medications, when they won't give you consent to, to consult with the mental health provider? Uh, do you feel like it's ethical to say, I need your consent, or else I'm not in a position to provide your treatment? Well, from a legal perspective, I think it's recommendable. Right. No, yes. I agree. I, I think that, you know, um, people have a right to be fairly evaluated and whatnot, but they don't have a right to compel you to write a controlled substance to them if they're not going to cooperate with what you need according to your licensing board and a standard to do the right thing. 
I can't hear you. Could you please stand up a little bit? The one I can't who's never hear. been ne the one who's never been seen by a mental health prof uh, professional. Never has, but is on all this medicine. So what's your role in it? Are you the one that has? Okay, so you got a primary care doing all the prescribing of stuff that may or may not be necessary. They haven't been to mental health, and you're encountering them and having to write their opioids or what? She's getting everything. Primary care dropped out. Okay. Okay. So, but the answer is still the same to me is that you know, you continuing them on these medications just because somebody else did it and they haven't been to mental health provider yet, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't seem that you can come up with a legitimate medical purpose. It doesn't seem that you would be doing it in the usual course of professional practice if you didn't try to, um, you know, deal with the situation. I'm not suggesting that you're not. I just say you don't sound like um, you're going to have a problem with saying no, and I think that this is a situation where you have to say no unless certain things happen. We can, we can talk a little more because I want to get to the other two questions, but we'll be available afterward. Uh, there's one over here. Yes, sir. It sounds to me like you, you both, both providers have the same position. I've evaluated this woman and she needs the opioids. I've evaluated this woman and she needs the benzos. The CDC's recommendation is avoid where possible and give a justification. And if you've made attempts to taper, made attempts to try to remove one or the other, even the California board basically then says, go look at the control issues relative to keeping coordinated care, uh, how much drug supply she has at a time, uh, making sure that she doesn't end up with other central nervous system depressants because that could really you know, disrupt the equation. And, you know, can, you know, probably seeing somebody like her more frequently, um, if, if she's on clonazepam, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, clonazepam. That is in some ways different than alprazolam or diazepam. I mean, they are all can be trouble, but um, at least it sounds like the one that she's on is less trouble than the one that's most popular out there for abuse, like alprazolam. So um, I think you would document that, that you've made these efforts. And, and don't feel like you have to have in every single circumstance that benzodiazepine removed. It's really about control and making sure that the benefits outweigh the risks in this situation with the joint effort of both providers. So it, it would seem to me the end statement would be, if he's not going to do it because he's justified, you're not going to do it because you're justified, let's come up with a letter that supports this patient and supports both of you to say that we've both examined this from our respective ends. We believe this is the right treatment. We're going to do our monitoring of this patient this way. We reached an agreement. We will coordinate care as follows. We will have this patient. The patient, doctor sign it, doctor sign it, patient signs it. Then you are in a much better position if you, than if you did not do that. But at the same time, I, I would add, and I might differ ever so slightly here, is that if you're an integrated practice, you, you have pain psychologists there? Okay. Okay, this may not be the situation, but here's the analysis that immediately comes to mind is, let's say that you have a situation in which there's both legal and clinical issues here. And let's, let's focus right now on the clinical issue. I'm not a clinician, but let's say that you have a situation in which no one's going to budge. The benzo guy is going to continue to co-prescribe benzo. And let's say, for whatever reason is, and legitimate is this, I cannot prescribe pain medication with the dosage that you're on or the drugs that you're on. Well, then you don't. You know, there's some other type of solution needs to be found. Because think of it this way, is that in your mind and in your experience and in the data that you have, you're saying it is dangerous for me to co-prescribe pain medication with this particular regimen. Let's just say, okay, for this purpose. And what's going to happen if something happens? The regular is going to come to you, so why did you co-prescribe? I didn't like it either, you know, but I did, you know. And that was a clinical call. And I agree with both of them. <laughs> we have one other question over here. Yes, ma'am. Well, there are, there are backup mechanisms and things that you can do when you have a script that's been altered. You can call the pharmacy and tell them you've issued a script to this patient 
and this is the amount of information. We have a past history of altering. You're in the process of tapering the patient. Then you send the patient on with a prescription. You could actually fax what you've written to the pharmacy, and then the patient shows up with the original. And that's and, okay on a two. And add, so, on, add fill only at this yeah. XYZ pharmacy. Correct. Also. Correct. Yeah. Excellent point. And, and uh, there was a comment over there. Mm -hmm. If you have that technology. Right. Yeah. There was somebody back here who wanted to add something? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I would agree. The comment was refer to an addiction treatment provider, but even if you need it, say, two or three days to get that person in, what do you do for those two to three days? And that's where Jen's answer came in. Yeah, yeah, access. Yeah. Hmm. And, you, and you looked at the SAMHSA treatment finder. You know, there's, there's no one that shows up in, in this uh, SAMHSA database for buprenorphine treatment providers, uh, SAMHSA, it's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration? No. That, and that's a great point in a variety of areas about getting names and asking for clarification. It's kind of like when you get a dirty UDT. You know, when you call somebody, it's oftentimes whoever answers the phone. And, you, and the quality of the response increases at a urine drug testing company when you get somebody's name. You know, the, the question is related to yeah. um, the use of nurse practitioners or uh, local, local towns. Local towns, yeah. Who are supervised by basically traveling physicians who might come what every six months or so, uh, and so some of those the, the physicians really don't have a relationship, but uh, the NP might be prescribing in a less than optimal way excessively. So, you know, I mean, my general impression is that that's sort of the new model for tele telemedicine now, where. Uh, the physician will fly in every six months or whatever is required by law and then just delegate thereafter. I think it's risky unless there are a lot of best practices put into place where there's solid information on the part of both the uh, NP who's following all the best practices but also the physician. That's very risky. Jen, did you have? I just want to say in litigation, especially criminal cases and, and board cases, uh, the, the physician is responsible for the supervision. And, and in that situation, tons of liability to the physician, to the organization, and then potentially to the nurse practitioner or PA. If you're in a situation as a nurse practitioner or PA where you have somebody that's not supervising you appropriately, you really want to be careful about how you handle that because you could get you know, booted out of a job, but you also don't want to ignore it because you could end up getting indicted or charged before the board. If it's a medical director responsible for placing supervising physicians, a board will often go after that medical director and then the supervising physician and may use the NP or PA as a witness and allow a, a lesser sanction to happen, but there still is that potential for sanction. Okay, well, thank you all. We've run out of time. We'll be available for a few more minutes. We appreciate your uh, coming yeah, to the you. session.